Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3 this evening. First John chapter 3. I want to start reading in verse uh, 21 down through verse 23. Beloved, if our hearts condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of the Lord, uh, uh, the name of his son, Jesus Christ, excuse me. And love one another as he gave us commandments. You know the idea of keeping God's commandments. Getting your prayers answered because you keep God's commandments. Is such a denominational religious thing. That I think a lot of people get hung up on that. Because the idea uh, that, uh, that so many of us have grown up with. I certainly did. And it, it haunted me for years and years. Is the idea that if you're good enough. Then God will hear and answer your prayer. But that's not what he's saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. That may be what religion teaches. That may be what denominations uh, promote. But that's not what the Bible says. Let's read it again. Beloved, if our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence toward God. So all you've got to do is get in the place where you have confidence toward God and your prayers are, are, I mean, it's a slam dunk. It's a sure thing. Now, the key to that is if your heart condemns you not. Now, when does our heart condemn us? Our heart condemns us when we step outside of God's law. He goes further and says, and whatsoever we ask, because we have confidence toward him, it goes back to verse 21, because we have confidence toward him, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. And here's why, because we keep his commandments. See, if you're keeping his commandments, your heart won't condemn you. Well, now a lot of people start talking about and are thinking about the Ten Commandments. So that means we have to keep the Ten Commandments. And, and uh, I mean, after all, the law of Moses has 630 different commandments. The ten that God gave Moses is really just the top ten. There's 630 commandments. And the Bible says if you miss on one of them, you miss on all of them. It doesn't take breaking one of them and you're guilty of the whole law. Well, he can't be talking about that. Although religion and denominations sometimes promote it somewhat similarly. Notice he says, and whatsoever we ask, because we have confidence toward God, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment. Just one. This is his commandment. That we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And love one another as he gave us commandment. Jesus said in John chapter 13, talking to the disciples, he said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. He's telling them even before he left the earth, the Old Testament is done away with. The Old Covenant is done away with. The law of Moses is done away with. There's one and only one commandment, and that is the law of love. You don't have 10 commandments. You don't have 630 commandments. You don't have but one commandment, and that is the law of love. Now, the reason why is because Paul wrote to us by the Holy Ghost and said, he that, keepeth, uh, he that uh, walketh in love fulfills the law. See, if you're, if you're walking in love, you're not going to break any of the Ten Commandments. You're not going to break any of the other 620 of them. If you're walking in love, you're not going to steal from your neighbor. You're not going to tell a lie on him, bear false witness. You're not going to do anything that's prohibited in the law, the Old Testament law. It's simply walking in love. And walking in love, taking a step outside of love, is the only thing that your heart will condemn you over. Because it's the only commandment there is. Now we all do it. We all step outside of the law of love. And the reason that our hearts condemn us. The reason that conviction is, is uh, a part of God's setup. 
a part of the makeup of man is so that it would bring us back to the place where we repent, get back over under God's love, and maintain that fellowship with him. That's why forgiveness is so important. Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, when he talked about how faith works, he said in verse 22 and 23 and 24, he gave us the description or explanation of how faith works. But then in verse 25, he said, and when you stand praying, talking about praying the prayer of faith, he said, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anybody. Why? Because unforgiveness is the number one hindrance to your faith working. Why? Because unforgiveness means you've taken a step outside of God's law of love. Well, what are we to do? Forgive and get back over under the, the, the grace of God. Get back over under the commandment of God. Why? Because when your heart doesn't condemn you, you have confidence toward God, and every prayer you ask, every prayer you pray gets answered. Now, it seems to me, and I, I'm, you know, you could compare this with other people, but in the, um, uh, the going on 35 years of being around ministry to the sick and ministering to the sick myself, and so forth, it seems that the number one thing that people deal with, there, there seem to be two main areas of where people have trouble. The number one area is people aren't convinced that it's the will of God for them to be healed. Now, you cannot pray the prayer of faith about anything, healing or anything else, without knowing the will of God. F.F. F. Bosworth, I think, is the one that coined the phrase. I don't know if he came up with it or whether he originated or not, but he's the first one I heard it from. His writings were the first that I ever read it from, I should say. That faith begins where the will of God is known. You can't ask for anything in faith unless you know it's God's will. The idea that so many people have about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, that doesn't work to receive healing. Because if you don't know it's the will of God to receive healing, there's no way in the world you can have faith for it. Because faith, the prayer of faith, ends in the glad confession, it's mine, I have it now. Well, if you don't know it's God's will for you to have it, there's no way you can say I have it with any kind of conviction or confidence. So faith begins where the will of God is known. Jesus said in John chapter 15 verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you'll ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Now why is that necessary? Well, number one, abiding in him means walking in fellowship or walking in love. Just like we're talking about here, just like John referred to it here. But then secondly, if my words abide in you means you'll know the will of God. So you'll be praying according to what you know from his word is his will. And therefore, you'll have confidence to receive. So this is his commandment, twofold, that you believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and walk in love, even as he gave his commandment. You know the thing that separates Christianity from anything and everything else on the face of the earth? And I'm talking about different philosophies or religions or cults or anything else. You know the one thing that separates Christianity? Jesus said, believe on me. Wouldn't it be stupid for somebody in the, that's a Buddhist to come up and say, well, I believe in Buddha and that's going to get me to heaven. No, Buddha teaches you to have some kind of higher consciousness and come to a higher plane or something. I don't know. Wouldn't it be crazy for somebody to say, well, I believe in Confucius and that belief in Confucius is going to get me to heaven. Well, Confucius gave them a, um, some kind of code of conduct. Do this and don't do that and maintain peace inner peace, and you'll be okay. Wouldn't it be silly for a Muslim to stand up and say, I believe in Muhammad, and that's going to get me to heaven? Muhammad never said, believe in me. He said the words that he spoke were from God, which contradict the Bible, so you decide for yourself. The Bible and, and uh, the Koran can't both be right. They contradict one another. One's right and one's wrong. But Muhammad never said, 
believe in him that he was the way to heaven. He just said that God was speaking through him. Allah was speaking through him to instruct the people in the way that they should go. His uh, Islam, the religion, Islam, is a code of conduct. And some of it's not real good stuff as we're seeing around us in this present day and age. It's about world domination. It's about taking over the world, whether it's your world or whether it's the world at large. Jesus didn't say any of that. Jesus didn't say, now, a new set of rules I give you. If that were the case, if that's what Jesus was after, he wouldn't have given us one commandment. He would have given us a whole bunch of them. He would have said, do this, do this, do this, do this, and don't do that. But he didn't. He said, a new commandment, one commandment I give to you, and that's the law of love. The thing that distinguishes Christianity from everything else is that Jesus said, believe on me. He said, I am the way to the Father. He said, I'm the only way to the Father. Believe on me. Now, I want to take a little tour through the book of John for just a minute and show you some things that Jesus said about believing on him. Turn back with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 in verse, uh, yeah, I better get the context here. Uh, let's start in verse 31. Here's the, um, the crowd talking to Jesus and they said, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now, notice Jesus is saying your well-being. He's talking about spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst being satisfied. He's talking about the spirit of man. But we know that provision is also uh, incorporated in the work of Jesus as well. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. But notice what Jesus said. Jesus said the way to for spiritual satisfaction, not one way, the way to spiritual satisfaction is to believe on me. That's a pretty brash statement. And you can understand the Jews... If they didn't, they have no excuse. I'm talking about the religious leaders. They really have no excuse because they knew the Old Testament. But had they not known the Old Testament, it would be very understandable for somebody to stand up and say, wait a minute, you're saying you're something? You're saying it's about you? I don't know about you, but I wouldn't fall for that if somebody did it today. And the reason I wouldn't is because I know the word. But a lot of people that don't know anything, they'll see things or they'll hear things and they'll be impressed and they'll think, wow, this is somebody. Jesus is very clearly saying, he that believeth on me, his spiritual hunger and thirst shall be satisfied. He goes on, but I said unto you that you have also seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. Notice in verse 40. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Skip down with me to verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Notice what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, now, if you do this, 
if you do a certain thing, then you'll have everlasting life. If you follow a certain uh, set of rules or a code of conduct or anything like that, if you perform certain acts that are pleasing to God, then you'll have eternal life. It all comes down to him. Jesus said, he that believeth on me hath. Everybody say hath. Notice believing takes possession. Believing is the manner in which you take possession. He that believeth hath everlasting life. Now, a lot of times people will just look at that casually and say, well, he's talking about forgiveness of sins. But we know that everlasting life, the eternal life that Jesus purchased for us, is a lot more than just forgiveness of sins. Galatians chapter 3 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The Old Testament very clearly in Deuteronomy 28 identifies the curse of the law as threefold. First, spiritual death. So Christ redeemed you from spiritual death. Secondly, poverty. Christ redeemed you from poverty. And thirdly, sickness. Christ redeemed you from sickness. And all of those three as general categories, there are many other smaller things or uh, uh, an infinite number of specific things that we could say were included as well. But the Bible divides uh, the, the curse of the law, at least, into those three made categories. So when it says Jesus, when Jesus said, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life, he's literally saying, he that believeth on me hath freedom from spiritual death. He that believeth on me has freedom from poverty. He that believeth on me has freedom from sickness. And it all comes down to Jesus. It all comes down to believing on Jesus. Look with me over to uh, John chapter 7. Beginning in verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me. Here he's making another statement about himself. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 39 describes or explains what he was talking about. But this spake he of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. They couldn't at that point in time. They just had a promissory note on it, so to speak, because the Holy Spirit wasn't given until after Jesus was raised from the dead. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive for the holy ghost was not yet given because jesus was not yet glorified glorified literally means resurrected that's when he was glorified it's when he was raised from the dead so notice we see in in john chapter 6 jesus said that your spiritual satisfaction is based on believing in him he said that everlasting life or freedom from spiritual death freedom from sickness freedom from poverty is based on believing in him now he's saying that receiving the Holy Spirit, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit and salvation. The Holy Spirit and salvation is talked about, a, is referred to as a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That's the way Jesus described it in John chapter 4, talking to the woman at the well of Samaria. That's the Holy Spirit that you receive when you're saved, when you're born again, when you make Jesus the Lord of your life. Here he's talking about the experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit, which flows out of you like rivers of li- living water. Water is used in both examples. Same spirit, just in different measures. Water in the well is the same as water in the river, but they're used for different purposes. The well services or benefits the the owner of the well. The river benefits everybody around. So he's talking about a work of the Holy Ghost in you and working through you. Or as Jesus referred to it in another place, talking to the disciples, the spirit within and the spirit upon. Same Holy Ghost. Just different workings of the same spirit. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you are saved? How many of you have received eternal life? 
then you know how to believe on him. Because you can't have eternal life without believing on him. Right? How many of you are filled with the Holy Spirit and speak with other tongues? Then you know how to believe on him. So how do you receive healing, which is a part of eternal life? Same way you receive salvation. Same way you were born out of death and into life. How do you receive healing to change the circumstances of the situation in your body? Same way you received the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Believing on Jesus. Look with me over to John chapter... um, Oh, I don't know if I want to do this one for the sake of time. Well, yeah, just turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, let's start reading in verse... uh, 37, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory, and spake of him. In other words, it's saying because of their unwillingness to believe on Jesus and who he was, they missed out on everything that God sent Jesus to do for them. The problem wasn't with Jesus. The problem was with their thinking, their wrong thinking, their refusal to accept Jesus for who he claimed to be. That's why every time Jesus said, my father and I are one, they've tried to take up stones to kill him. Every time Jesus said, my father worketh and I work together, they said, you're doing wrong, you're blaspheming because you're making yourself equal with God. Their whole thing was they refused or rejected. I guess we should say it this way. They refused to believe and therefore rejected Jesus in his claim to be sent from heaven. Now let's stop and think about that for a minute. What are they seeing with their physical eyes? They're seeing Jesus do miracles. What are they hearing with their ears? They're hearing Jesus say things that they've never heard anybody teach in their lives. If Jesus, when he was at the age of 12, you remember the story how when he and his family went to the temple for the annual trek to offer sacrifices and, and so forth. You had to do that once a year. Every family had to do that once a year in Jerusalem. He was left behind. And after three days, the family realized he's not with the rest of the family, the rest of the group. We thought he was just hiding in the crowd somewhere, you know. Just missed him. He's with other loved ones or kinsmen or something like that. They go back after three days to find him. And they find him sitting in the temple. Now the Bible says at age 12, Jesus is answering questions of the religious leaders, the rulers of the Jews. And he's asking them questions. He's giving them answers that they don't have. And he's asking them questions that they can't answer. It says that the, that the, the, uh, the most intelligent, the most educated, the most scholarly religious leaders... Certainly people that are in this same category here. That he's confounding them with his knowledge and his spiritual insight at age 12. What do you think it was like at age 30? I'm guessing it was even more. I think I'm pretty safe to guess that. Wouldn't you think? See, we've got the idea. I know I used to think like this. I used to think, man, if I could just teach well enough, then everybody would get the things of God. They'd get a hold of it. How can you teach better than Jesus and people rejected him? It's not about how good the teaching is. 
It's about people's willingness to accept what they're hearing. That's what was missing here. Jesus was sent to do the same things that bring them the same benefits, the same blessings from heaven that he was sent to to bring to everybody. But they rejected it because they refused to accept one and only one thing, and that was Jesus. They refused to believe on him. They believed in the miracles, but they wouldn't believe in him. They couldn't deny the miracles, but they refused to believe on him. They refused to believe that God sent him to do these things to change them. So they refused to believe on Jesus and therefore rejected the work of God. Verse 42. Nevertheless, even though the majority of them rejected Jesus, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him. I don't know how many he is. But it sounds like a good number anyway. I don't think that means the majority of them, but certainly a good number. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Now, can I ask you a question? Where were they concerning the things of God? Well, if the the New Testament principle of believing on Jesus means anything, they're still in a bad spot. Because even though they believe, they believed on him, meaning they believed God sent him. They believed that he was the son of God. They believed he was who he claimed he was. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 and 10 that that, uh, salvation depends on two things. That if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as your Lord, then you'll be saved. They're only walking on one leg of salvation here. They believe, but they're not willing to confess. So if the principle of salvation for us is any, anything to judge by, they missed out on the things of God. They were the most miserable of all men because they believed Jesus was who he said he was, yet they didn't take advantage of it. Then Jesus said, verse 44, oh, I'm sorry, I should put verse 43 in here. Let me back up to verse 42 again, read the whole thing. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For, here's the reason why, here's why they wouldn't confess him. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Bad place to be. But notice that even though they were convinced, either by Jesus' words or by his actions, the miracles and the works and so forth, They still let something get in the way and fail to receive. I wonder how many times people fail to receive because they let something get in their way of what the Bible says belongs to them. I wonder how many people reject the baptism of the Holy Ghost because they don't want to be associated with those crazy tongue-talking people. That'd be the same situation, wouldn't it? I remember Brother Hagin telling the story, uh, well, it wasn't his testimony. He was telling the testimony of a, of a Baptist minister that got sick. And he was uh, a traveling minister and, and would go to the, all the biggest Baptist churches around. And, and he had lots of support. And he was very popular and very well-known and that kind of stuff. And he got to the place where he got so sick that he had to give up a lot of his uh, speaking engagements and, and that type of thing. And he was very wealthy. He lived out in Beverly Hills and, and that type of stuff. I mean, people, people treated him right and, and paid him well. And uh, so he got sick and he got to the place where he couldn't take care of himself. So he said, uh, uh, he said well, I, I really don't have any other choice, any other option, but I'm going to go back to my mom's 
to the old homestead place, and it was somewhere out in the country, and uh, he didn't make a didn't make it widely known, but he was from a backwoods type environment, and so he goes back to live on live with his uh, his mother, and he had a brother close by, and uh, so he's there living at his mom's, and every every day she'd you know get him some way or another, get him out to the front porch from the bed, and about all he could do is sit all day. And uh, there was a little boy that, that worked on the farm for his mom. And he came by and and um, a little boy was introduced to him and kind of found out the story and what's going on and that kind of stuff. So uh, in the process of time, the little boy started talking to him and found out that he was a very well-known preacher. And, and uh, you know, told the preacher guy told him the story, told him the whole story. And so he said, well, why don't you receive your healing? The little boy said, why don't you receive your healing? And he said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, Pastor so-and-so down the road down here, little frame church behind, you know, on the other side of the tracks type thing, Pentecostal church. He said, he prays and lays hands on people and anoints them with oil and they get healed. And he says, oh, you can't be serious. He said, yeah, it happens all the time. They told a story of somebody that got healed the Sunday night before or whatever it was, you know, recent testimony. So he said, would you take me down there? So he arranged for the little boy to take him down there. I say little boy, teenage boy arranged for the guy to take him down there and they sat in the back and he heard the bible priest he heard the gospel he heard about healing just heard and saw some things that that he never would have expected never would have believed and so he he's just thrilled he goes back home didn't get prayed for that night didn't want to be prayed for that night goes back home he's sitting on the porch for the next several days and he's thinking this through and he's thinking oh my goodness he said man my heart just jumped he said i i know that what i heard is right he said, what's that going to do to my ministry if I get involved with these tongue-talking people? So he passed it by. He let it go. Well, he got to the place where he was so sick, he was at the point of death now in just a matter of a month or two or whatever. So he sent word. He couldn't even get out on the porch anymore. He sent word to the teenage boy. Finally, he got bad enough to where he said, take me back down there. Well, long story short, he goes down there and he gets prayed for. He hears the word priest. He gets prayed for. He gets uh, and, and gets healed. He has hands laid on him. He receives the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And he lost all of his support. Had to sell his house in Beverly Hills. Had to, I mean, changed everything about his lifestyle. But it was only when it became worth it to him that he received. I'm convinced. I know without a shadow of a doubt there's a lot of people that let the things of the world keep them from receiving the things of God. And God will let you. God will sit there and let you pass everything by if you want to. Because it's up to you, not up to him. See, God gave you his best when he sent you his son. What you do about it is up to you. Which is why so much of the church is living in a what they think is a dignified manner and passing up on some of the greatest blessings that, that are part of salvation. So it said they passed it up because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried in verse 44 and said, He that believeth on me believeth not on me but him that sent me. And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. I am come a light unto the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. So notice the difference between darkness and light is believing on Jesus. Now certainly Jesus is talking about this in relation to salvation. He's talking about darkness as being a type of spiritual death and light as being a type of eternal life. But remember eternal life is not just 
being born again. Eternal life. Or maybe, let me say it this way. The born again experience is a, a possibility. Is made possible by all of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And the Bible says that Jesus did not just die on the cross for your sins. The Bible says Jesus took upon himself stripes. And that by his stripes you were healed. Because he took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. And with his stripes you were healed. It says the chastisement of your peace. Meaning your prosperity was upon him. Literally what that means is. Jesus paid the price for poverty. Just like he paid the price for sin and death. So it's a threefold work. If the Bible's true. If the Bible's true. Jesus not only paid the price for spiritual death. He paid the price for sickness. And he paid the price for poverty. So eternal life therefore. Would not just be forgiveness of sins. It would be forgiveness of sins. Prosperity or provision. And healing if the bible is true now it's interesting that the very thing the very scripture that is quoted here in john chapter 12 is isaiah saying lord who has believed our report is the first verse of the chapter that says those three things were paid for in the old testament the first verse of the chapter in the old testament that they say that those three things spiritual death sickness and poverty were all paid for by jesus on the cross It's pointing forward to the Messiah. It's Isaiah 55. It's pointing forward to the Messiah and his work. And it says that he will make a a sacrifice for sin. He says he'll make a sacrifice for uh, for poverty. And he'll make a sacrifice for healing. Or a sacrifice for sickness. The result being healing. And that's the verse of scripture that John quotes here. About Isaiah. That they passed up on. Finally turn with me over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. What that literally means is Jesus is saying, Believing, believe on me just like you believe on God. Think about the statement that he's making. Now, these guys accept it because they've been with him for three years. They've seen what he's done. They've heard what he's said, heard what he's preached. They've witnessed him day after day after day. And I have no doubt that they're convinced, um, well, at least to, to a great degree, Jesus still had to upbraid them for their unbelief for not believing the whole thing. But they have the greatest opportunity. Let's say it this way. They have the greatest opportunity of anybody on the face of the earth to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And there have been flashes along the way. Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Peter winds up saying, he, Jesus asks, well, who do you say I am? Peter answers, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus identifies that God himself revealed that to Peter. Well, the others are there. Everybody hears it. So when Peter declares, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus said, right on, Peter. God showed you that. God revealed that to you. You don't know that just because of the things you've heard me say or the things you've seen me do. You know that because of supernatural insight or supernatural revelation. They all hear that. They know what the answer is supposed to be. To whatever degree they're convinced of it or not. They know what it's supposed to be. So when Jesus says let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Can we extend that principle. To say you only believe in God. To the degree that you believe in Jesus. Would that be accurate? I believe it is. I believe people that talk about, well, God can do anything. So God can heal if he wants to. Or simply blow in smoke. 
Because if they don't believe in Jesus as being the Savior from sickness, they don't believe God's a healing God. Did you hear me? I believe, personal opinion, I believe people are blowing smoke when they talk about, well, God can do anything, but we just don't know if he will. I believe that's just smoke. If this principle is true, you only believe in God to the degree that you believe in Jesus. So if you do not believe Jesus is the Savior from sickness, along with the Savior from spiritual death, then you don't believe God is a healing God. You may believe that God sent Jesus and Jesus healed, but if anybody that believes that things have changed can't believe that God's still a healing God. Look at verse 12. John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are saved? How many of you are filled with the Holy Ghost? So you know how to believe on it. Well, guess what the Bible just said about you? Jesus said, verily, verily. Verily, verily means truly, truly. In other words, he's saying this is the truth. And I need to say it twice so that you realize and take notice of what I'm saying. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. The works that I do shall he do also. And then he went further and said, even greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Guess what? You're the believing one that's to do the work. Let's now stop and think about what that means. That means in any given situation, you can ask yourself, if Jesus were here, if he's still on the earth and he were here right now in this situation, what would he do? And you can expect to do the same thing. Now, I understand that's going to take some wrapping your head around. But that's the fact. I understand that a lot of people will reject that and refuse to accept it as truth because it seems so far out there to their thinking, their natural way of thinking. I get that. I understand. I also understand that a, that a very small minority of people will really take hold of it and act on that. I get that too. But that is the fact. That is the fact. We have, as believers, believers on him, we have an opportunity. Maybe we can even say, at least in some cases, a responsibility to identify what would Jesus do in this situation and do the same thing that he did. Now, folks, you need to understand, and and let me qualify that because some people are going to take that and without thinking it through and run off with it and say, I said something I didn't say. Jesus didn't fix every problem. So we can't just look at somebody in a dire situation and say, well, Jesus would have fixed that. He didn't. There were some situations where Jesus couldn't fix because he couldn't get people to believe. Mark chapter 6, verse 5, and he in his own hometown of Nazareth could there do no mighty work. doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So if unbelief hindered Jesus when he was here on the earth, unbelief will hinder us from doing the same works of Jesus now and today. Right? So be careful that your mind doesn't just run away and say, well, Jesus would have fixed everything. He didn't. Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. And he found one person there and he asked one person, wilt thou be made whole? 
The Bible tells us that there were five porches full of sick folks and crippled people and so forth. Now, I don't know how big the porches were. But it indicates that it was some kind of crowd anyway. Out of that some kind of crowd, however big it was, there's only one guy that gets anything. And then Jesus, after he ministers to that one guy, didn't find faith there. The first thing he looked for was faith. Couldn't find it in the man. Still ministered to him by by, um, uh, a gift of the Spirit, a gift of healing, or maybe it was a gift of faith and operation. Sometimes it's kind of hard to tell unless the Bible identifies it. But it's some manifestation of the Holy Ghost. After that, Jesus turns and walks away from the rest of the crowd, and nobody else got anything. I've heard people say, in a a derogatory way, I've heard people say, well, those healing evangelists, if they're healing like Jesus did, why don't they go into the hospitals and clean them out? Well, John chapter 5 by the pool of Bethesda is the closest thing we've got, the closest example we've got of of the hospital in that day. And Jesus ministered to one person, and that was because the Holy Spirit prompted him to and left everybody else the way they were. So doing the works of Jesus, doing what Jesus would do if he were here in this situation does not necessarily mean now we have the responsibility to fix everybody's problems. You can't be the Savior for in, in Jesus' place. We don't need another one. We've got one. Amen? But when the conditions are met, we can do the same works that Jesus did. And you know as well as I do that when you got saved, you knew a lot less about Jesus than you do now. When you got filled with the Holy Ghost, you knew a lot less about Jesus than you know now. You knew just enough to act on it, and you got what the Bible promised. That's exactly what we see happening in Jesus' day. You remember the story in Mark chapter 9 where the father brings his son to Jesus? Jesus isn't there. He's away with Peter, James, and John at the Mount of Transfiguration. And so when he finally shows up on the scene, there's a big crowd there, and, and, and people are, you know, milling about. So Jesus asks what's going on. And the father of a young boy, a young boy, uh, adolescent, we would assume, the father says, I brought my son to your disciples to cast out the devil, and they couldn't do it. And Jesus answers him and says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. When Jesus, uh, when the boy came to Jesus, the devil took him and tore him and caused him to go into some kind of fit type thing. And Jesus asked the father, how long ago has it been since this has been upon him? And the father said, since he was a child, oftentimes it throws him into the fire to, to, to burn him up. Sometimes it throws him into the water to drown him. It's just a real mess. And then the father says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Well, Jesus knows that the reason that the disciples couldn't do anything is because of a lack of faith on the part of the Father. That's why he answers the Father and says, Oh, faithless. That means someone that is without faith as a part of this present generation. So he says, It's not a matter of what I can do. It's a matter of what you can believe. The Father then says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, I say this every time that I refer to the story. That does not sound like great faith to me. Does it to you? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, faith says, it's mine, I have it now. Strong faith, according to Romans chapter 4 in Abraham's example, strong faith gives glory to God before it has the answer. That's not what he's doing. But notice what he does do. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, I've got just a little speck of faith. Seems to me like there's more unbelief than faith. I'm speaking from the Father's point of view. 
He probably recognized more unbelief than there was faith. And that's probably because it has been on his son for so long. And he's dealt with this time after time. The disciples tried. They couldn't do anything about it. So now he doesn't know what to hope for from Jesus. But he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I would submit to you that that's what most people get saved on. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, they may not make that statement. They may not say it that way. But there's a lot of things you don't understand about salvation when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Right? Anybody know how that new birth thing was going to work out before you received it? What about the baptism of the Holy Ghost? That's a real big one. Because there's a lot of questions about, well, if the Holy Ghost comes on me, how is this tongue part going to work? So there's a lot of it we go in with what's sometimes referred to as blind faith. Blind faith is what most people mean when they say, Lord, help my unbelief. There's parts of it that they can't see. There's parts of it that they don't understand. So they consider it to be blind faith. But if it's action upon the word, it's Bible faith, not blind faith. God never requires you to know everything before it starts. But what he does require of you is to believe on Jesus and act according to what the Bible says to do. And that's Bible faith. So in that sense, we could say that the father is operating, even though it seems to him like little faith, he's operating on Bible faith. He's operating simply on what Jesus said. What Jesus said is, is not a matter of what my power is. The, the limits of my power are not in question. The question is one simple truth, and that is, what can you believe? So what does the father do? He immediately says, Lord, I believe. Don't understand all this. Don't have it figured out. Don't understand why the disciples couldn't do anything about it when you gave them authority to cast out devils. Don't understand how this is going to work. But Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus ministers to the little boy and casts the devils out of him. What did it come down to? It came down to one and only one thing. And that was Jesus identified that he had the power to do it. But it took faith on the part of the father. That's what if thou canst believe means. When the father said, and, and it's, it's a little blind to us, it was very blind to us in the, the English translation. But if you look at some other translations, Jesus is answering almost sarcastically. He's saying, if I can, like you're questioning whether or not I can. Now, why would Jesus do that? Because the whole reason that the father has brought his son to Jesus is because he's heard all the stuff that Jesus is doing. So what reason would there be for the father to question whether Jesus has the power to do this? Because he's heard, him about, heard about him doing stuff like this, maybe even greater stuff than this. Maybe there are even things that he would consider to be harder than this. I mean, he made lepers to walk. Or he cleansed lepers. He made the lame to walk. He opened blind eyes. I'm not exactly sure where the father was at, but any of those things could have been considered by him in some way or another to be harder than his situation. So when Jesus says, if I can... He's saying, look, it's not a question of the power. It's a question of what you're willing to believe. So the father says, Lord, I believe. Help mine believe. Jesus casts the devil out of that little boy and delivers him back to his father. Healed and whole like the father had great faith all along. Now, the father didn't have quite as good a story to tell. Because if he's going to tell the story honestly, he's going to say, man, I was shaking. My knees were knocking together. 
But I said, Lord, I believe. And then Jesus did the work. He might prefer the story to say, you know, I was like that centurion. who said, just speak the word only. My son will be healed. Because I understand authority. I know how this stuff works. And Jesus could have said to him, just like he said to the centurion, I've not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. He didn't have quite as big a story to tell from his personal standpoint, but he sure had a victory to report. All because of Bible faith. He didn't believe because of what he could see. He believed because of what Jesus said to him. It's not a question of the power. Folks, can I submit to you that it's never a question of the power? Ever? Because God's power is unlimited. Jesus' power has not assuaged in any way whatsoever. It has not diminished in any manner whatsoever. The power has never been a problem. The power will never be a problem. The question is always the same. That is, what can you believe? Now, if we believe on Jesus, that means we have to see him in some form or another. How do you see Jesus? It's a real question. I really want you to consider it. A lot of people see Jesus weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the way the pictures are painted. Some people see Jesus on the earth ministering to the sick or multiplying the loaves and the fishes. They see him doing his earthly work here and uh, when he was here. Nothing wrong with that. Some people see Jesus hanging on the cross. The crucifix is all over the place. Many people have, been, have grown up looking at those things and stuff. And so they see Jesus on the cross. When you believe on Jesus, when it says he that believeth on Jesus has everlasting life. Meaning has freedom from spiritual death, has freedom from poverty, and has freedom from sickness. What are you supposed to see? Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 1. Let me show you what to see in Jesus. Let me show you what to believe in on him. Believe on concerning him. Revelation chapter 1. This is the picture of Jesus in the New Testament. This is a picture of the risen and resurrected Jesus. You remember when Jesus was uh, with the disciples? Uh, Mark chapter 9 is, is one example, one account of it, where Jesus was transfigured. Where there was a cloud from heaven that came down and Jesus' raiment started shining, his clothing started shining. Moses and Elijah appeared with uh, Peter, James, and John there. Moses and Elijah appeared and, and started talking to Jesus about Jesus' crucifixion, upcoming crucifixion and resurrection. Bible says God does nothing except he shows his prophets first. Moses and Elijah are in Abraham's bosom. And Jesus is telling them, tell everybody I'm coming. The reason they're in Abraham's bosom is because they're believing for the Messiah to come. Jesus said, let them know I'm here. It'll just be another few days. Get them ready. Gather up the load for when I lead captivity captive. What was Jesus transfigured because of? What was the transfiguration? Did God just come down and shine light from heaven, like sunlight breaking through a cloud and say, this is my son, I just want to put a spotlight on it. Is that what the transfiguration was? No. No, it says Jesus appeared in glory. It said Moses and Elijah appeared and Jesus appeared in glory and his clothes began to shine. You remember in the Old Testament when Moses went up in the mountain to talk to, to God and he was up there for 40 days? He came down, he had to cover his face because his face was shining. If that's the effect that an, uh, that an unrighteous man, an Old Testament man, 
without the redemptive power of Jesus to make him righteous. If that's the the effect of, of the glory of God that he was in for 40 days would have on the physical body. And he didn't know. People are shying away from him. They're, they're backing off from him. He said, what is wrong with you people? And they said, well, your face is shining. Can you wear a sack? So that's what he did. He covered his face. If that glory was so evident on, on Moses so that the people had to, were, were afraid of him, it was so unusual that they were afraid of him, what do you think the glory of God was that Jesus appeared in on the mountain of transfiguration? I don't have a legitimate answer for it, folks. But I imagine it was brightness, illumination, like nothing we've ever seen. Wouldn't you think? Well, that was the glory of God that Jesus was already, already had on the inside of him. I believe, personal opinion, I believe that they were able to see through the veil of the flesh to who Jesus really was. terrible example here how many of you saw the movie cocoon you remember that movie you remember the alien people that had the the humanoid skin when they peeled that skin back they were bright and shining and stuff like that i think jesus was a little bit brighter but nevertheless i think that's what the transfiguration was all about i think it was the glory of god inside of jesus that was made manifest for everybody that was there to see but that wasn't the glory that he has now. He has greater glory now that he's been raised, resurrected from the dead and given a name that's above every name. He's got greater glory now than he had when he was here on the earth. Jesus, by his own testimony, had greater glory with the Father before he came to the earth than the glory that he operated in while he was here. He asked in John chapter 17, the prayer that he prayed on the last night that he, of, uh, of his earth walk, when he was with the disciples just before he was betrayed he asked the father he said father give me back the glory that i had with you before the worlds were which means he didn't have that he had it no reason to ask for it right so he said father give me back that glory that was the glory that he laid aside to come to the earth so whatever measure of glory he was operating with here on the earth as an old covenant righteous man was not the glory he had with the father in heaven What's he got now? The Bible says that he's been given more than he had before. What does that look like? Found Revelation 1 yet? Start with me in verse 12. John's talking about the revelation he received. Well, let's start in verse 10. He said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in the book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto a fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. 
And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Now, may I interrupt the, the passage there for just a moment? John was on the mountain of transfiguration. Notice what John does not say. I saw Jesus like we saw him on the mountain that time. No, this is something much, much more. This is something much, much greater. This is something much, much more glorious. Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He sure didn't do that on the mountain of transfiguration. Neither did Peter. Peter spoke up, said something stupid, and God had to shut him up and say, this is my son. Hear him. This is much greater than that, folks. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me and saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Now, folks, the keys of hell and death is a part of what Jesus purchased or what he, uh, what he gained by conquest. Part of the spoils of him stripping the devil of his power. Now, what that means is very simply this. Anything that holds a person in bondage, anything that's a consequence of sin that holds a person in bondage, Jesus has the keys for. Would sickness meet that criteria? Guess what? The devil doesn't have the keys to your healing. There's not one thing he can do to enforce your healing. I'm sorry, to enforce your sickness, to prevent your healing. Your healing depends on one and only one thing, and that is believing on Jesus. You already know how to do that because you got saved. You already know how to do that because you got filled with the Holy Ghost. Doing that's not a hard thing. It's simply a matter of believing that Jesus is the Savior. Just as much the Savior from sickness as he is the Savior from death. You remember what Jesus said? Again, it's back to Mark, or Matthew chapter 16, which we referred to before, where Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? The disciples answered, and, and some of them said, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist, and some people say that you're Elijah, and some people say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus turned it around and said, well, who do you say I am? And that's when Peter answered, and he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you, thou art Peter, meaning a rock, an unstable rock, a little rock. But upon this rock, the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, too many people have a picture of the devil running after them and they're trying to hold out. But how does a gate operate as a weapon against you? He didn't say in the fiery darts of the enemy shall not overcome you. He said the gates of hell shall not prevail against you or against the church. That's you, isn't it? The picture that we should have is us advancing forward and the devil doing everything he can to slow our advance. But he can't do it. Because Jesus has the keys to hell and death. Folks, when we understand these things, walking in the blessings of God will become so simple. It'll become like a child's toy. Easiest thing in the world. Well, why isn't it simple now? Because of wrong thinking. Because we haven't accepted what the Bible says or haven't thought it through. 
You know what the Lord dealt with me about? Something I shared with you just a little bit earlier. I'm out of town. I'm out of time. I'll quit real quick. John chapter 14, verse 12. He said, Believest thou that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? Well, that's verse 11. He said, He that believeth on me, verse 12, John 14, 12, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And the Lord asked me point blank here just recently. He just asked me point blank. When are you going to start accepting that you believe in me? I thought, what? Wait a minute, say that slow. When am I going to start accepting that I believe in him? And I started thinking about it. When did I start believing in him? Well, I've been believing in him literally all my life. Since I was seven years old. A few days before I turned seven years old. I've been believing in God all my life. Now, I've been walking with him for almost 40 years. I came to the knowledge of the truth almost 40 years ago. And I, I struggled some to begin with. Kind of went in and out. And it took me a while to peel off some of the layers of the world and that kind of stuff. But I've been solidly following him for at least 35 of those 40 years. And the Lord asked, I realized what he was doing. He didn't talk to me about it anymore. He just left that one question out there for me to consider. But I realized what he's saying. Here, I've been trying to believe in him some way or another to do the works that he did. When all the time, I do believe in him. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe he died for, for the death uh, the, the paid the price for spiritual death. I believe that he paid the price for poverty. I believe he paid the price for sickness. I do believe him. I believe that he's the savior from death, poverty, and sickness. Just like the Bible says so. So then why am I not doing the works of Jesus? Because I've never stopped to consider, wait a minute, that's me. I'm waiting for something to happen. I, I was, not anymore, but I was waiting for something to happen. I was waiting for some kind of revelation or some kind of word from God or something that would help me get over the hump to where I could get to the place where I could believe in him to do the works. I already do. So guess what that means? If I accept the Bible to be true, because I do believe that he's the Savior from death, poverty, and sickness, I do the same works that Jesus does in every situation. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm confessing that. I'm not saying I accept it mentally yet. I don't. But give me a while to keep confessing it, and I will. And I can see what the Lord's doing with me. And I, looking at it, it was so simple. Why in the world didn't I start this 35 years ago? I could have grown up with it. But I didn't. Because I didn't stop to think it through. I had a stronghold in my thinking. That I didn't even realize I had. Just a failure to consider it. A failure to look at it, look at it for what it is. A failure to, to, to think it through. And realize where I was and where I needed to be. Folks, the same thing's true for you. You already know you believe in him because you're saved. You already know you believe in him because you're filled with the Holy Ghost. How hard is it to believe in him as savior of sickness? How hard is it to believe in him for what he's already paid for? Just like sins. Simplest thing in the world. Lord, I believe. Let's all stand together. Simplest thing in the world. If the father in Mark chapter 9 can get it, every one of us can get it. Let's pray. Father, we believe in the Son you sent, the Savior that you sent to the earth. We believe that he was sent from heaven. 
We believe he did the works on the earth he did because you were with him. We believe he died on the cross to pay the price for sin and death, poverty and sickness. And we believe that he's been raised from the dead. Father, we know he has now been raised in glory. A glorious form like nothing that we experienced or nothing that anyone experienced when he was here on the earth. We believe. We believe that you took our infirmities, Lord Jesus. And that you bore our sicknesses. And with your stripes, we are healed. We believe that because the Bible says so. Not because of any feeling we have, but because the Bible says so. So with Bible faith, we declare that we receive our healing because we believe in you. Lord Jesus, you said that those that believe in you shall do the same works you did and even greater works. And whatsoever we ask, call for or require in your name, you will do it. We call for and require for healing for the people of this congregation in the name of Jesus. Because we believe, Father, we declare that we're healed by faith in the precious and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh, thank you, Father, that it's done. Thank you, Father. If we were praying for salvation, we'd thank you for being saved. If we're praying for to be filled with the Holy Ghost, we'd thank you for filling us. Since we prayed for healing, we thank you for healing us. In Jesus' precious name. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have the keys of hell and death. There is no sickness, there is no work of the enemy that's greater than that which is produced when we believe in you because you are our Savior. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much. It's so good to be healed. You know how we struggled with it. You know how the shame that it brought to us. We thank you that we're healed in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Now, Lord, you said you'd do it because we called for it and required it in your name. So we thank you that it's done. We thank you, Lord, for making it so. For making it good in our lives and in our bodies. Just like you said you would. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for honoring your word in our behalf. In Jesus' precious name. If you agree with that, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Go and have a believing week.